as you're grabbing a seat this morning, I just want to mention uh, something that happened on Thursday night um, that uh, we're going to just share with you in just a moment. But I know a lot of you know that um, uh, back the last part of last year, our denomination asked if we would just sort of step in and offer some covering and some help for the Bridgeport Church, the Tualatin Foursquare Church. And uh, we went through a couple of months of trying to figure out what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to care for them and provide some pastoral covering? Um, The pandemic has been hard on a lot of smaller churches in our community, and that one in particular got hit really hard. And so we tried a few different things. We were trying to see what this might look like. And uh, in the process, we started to kind of stumble onto something that God was doing. And uh, in fact, um, there was one particular evening where Pastor Dan Gill, I don't know how many of you guys know Dan Gill, but Dan... Um, served our city in the Beaverton Police Department for a long time, and then he's been serving on our staff here for the last seven years. And Pastor Dan and I went down one day. He's also the executive director of, of pastoral ministries here at B4. And he and I went down to meet with their church council. And I'll, I'll never forget that there was this moment where we're sitting with the church council, and I look over at Dan, and he looks at me, and I all of a sudden realize that God's doing something in Dan's heart for this community of faith. Um, So the next couple of weeks sort of transpired and we were talking about Dan just filling in down there, sort of being an interim pastor. And the more we did that, the more Dan just talked about how excited he was about what God was doing at Bridgeport. And then finally, um, he's one of the most loyal men on the planet. I had to look at him and I said, Dan, if it wasn't for me and you wanting to stay faithful right now in this moment with me, what what is Jesus telling you to do? And he said, Jesus is telling me I'm supposed to be the pastor of Bridgeport Church. So on Thursday night, because they serve there on Sundays and have been for the past several months, um, Thursday night we prayed for them. But I just wanted you to hear from Dan's heart. So we just have a short video of that conversation where I just handed Dan to share a little bit of the journey, he and Sharon. And I just want you to sit back for a moment and catch up and know what's going on with these guys. And so would you just take a moment and watch this with me? You know, God is a God of surprises. And it certainly has been that for us. Um, when we went down and we thought, okay, we will just love. And Jamie was there, she's here tonight. And just love on the people, take care of them, do what we could do. And then came January 9th, Saturday night, and God spoke very, very clearly that this was the place where you're to be. And it's an interesting story how we got there. You know, years ago, the Lord talked to us about... um, just going to Sherwood and Tiger and Tualatin and just driving through the neighborhoods, walking through the neighborhoods and praying. And we landed up in Bridgeport parking lot years ago. And we prayed and just prayed for that, that fellowship that was there. And, but you know, every time we drove by, there was just something, there's just something that would kind of leap within me. And that was Holy Spirit. And he, he knew, he knew what was going to happen years later. Yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting because there's been a lot of meetings, you know, Dan would have a, he'd be down there, he's been preaching down there on Sundays, and, uh, but then we'd have meetings on Monday, or just our normal meeting as our executive team, and uh, every time it got to Dan's turn to talk, all he talked about was Bridgeport every week, and, uh, and just like more and more and more, and then, so then finally, at one point, I, we just, I said, we need to have like a real conversation, because your guys' heart is bent towards serving and loving that community, and so uh, I looked at Dan and I said, Dan's the most loyal, committed person that I think I've ever known in my life. And, uh, and he, I said, take me out of the equation. Loyal to me, commitment to me. What do you feel like Jesus is saying to you? And he just got tears in his eyes and he said, 
I think that Sharon and I are supposed to go invest in this community of faith and shepherd them and love them in this next season. And so I said, that sounds kind of like a New Testament thing, you know, that when the Holy Spirit's moving and he's leading us, that we get behind it and we say, all right, here we're going. So that's what's happening. So you guys are going to be pastors at Bridgeport Church. Tell us just a little bit. What are you guys dreaming about in the days ahead? What's, what are we looking at in the, in the months to come? What's on your guys' heart? Yeah, if you're uh, used to the Viking days, they talked about burning their ships. That way they would be committed to the battle. Well, we're burning our ships. We're all in. And uh, really, we want the same thing there that we want here. And that is when people come on Sunday mornings or they come in contact with anybody at the church, we want them to behold and encounter Jesus. He is the center. He is everything. But we also want to be a fellowship where everybody is welcome, where they can have a sense of belonging and have a, a sense of contact where they feel like, I hear this around here a lot, and I believe that's a word almost from the Lord, like coming home. And I hope you feel that here. I want them to feel that there. But also, we want to have a mechanism and a vehicle in place to where people come. And they can become everything that God has purposed them to be. And then we always keep our eyes out. Because you know what? We're in it for the city. We're in it. We're believing. Joe and Southeast, us, we're, use a military term, we're on your south flank. And B4 and, and Israel Megan and Central Victoria, we are in this together because we believe God is going to move in this area in a way he's never moved before. And we get to be a part of it. And we get to partner with you. And so we're really, really excited about that beyond part two because I can't wait to see what God's going to yeah. do with all of us, all of our churches. Yeah. One of, the, one of the cool things that's come out of this is the realization, yeah. <clears throat> the realization that God's sort of forming a network or a family of churches. Joe Gruber, who some of you have got a chance to meet, is planting a church called All City in the Montevilla neighborhood. Dan and Sharon are going to be down south. We have Central Victoria, a Spanish-speaking congregation on our campus. And what we've started to see also over the last a few weeks, a few months really, is that God is sort of forming a network of churches, a family of churches that are going to partner together. And so I say that to also say, these guys are going, but they're also not going. And we've talked a lot about that, that we're staying family, we're staying connected. Uh, we've even got plans for them to participate in staff meetings and different things so that they're not left alone. So we're going to be in this together. But there is a sending, and you guys are going, and you did pack up your office, and it did make me upset yesterday. And, uh, and, and, and sendings, um, when we look at the Bible, uh, are accompanied with a, with a sending that we would pray and we would ask the Holy Spirit to guide you guys. And um, Dan, the Lord gave me a picture for you guys uh, early on in this, and it was the picture from Joshua when Caleb, as an old man, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, but Caleb in the book of Joshua uh, realizes that there's land that hasn't been taken. And it says that Caleb, even in his, in his older age, that he looked at the land and said, we're going to take the hills. And the Lord just showed me that for you guys, that you guys have said, hey, we are young at heart and we are taking hills for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I just want to encourage you to pray for Dan and Sharon uh, as we did on Thursday night. Be praying for them if you know them reach out to them. We're so excited about what God's doing through them and what he's doing in that community of faith. And already we just see some really beautiful things that are happening. 
Uh, before I dive into the message this morning, a couple of quick things I also want to mention. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that beginning in March, we're going to have all of our kids' ages available for B4 Kids um, at both services starting next week. And so uh, if you've got kids, now there's another option for you. And uh, also want to mention this, if there's any way that you want to jump in or if you have the desire to help us get things back up and running in B4 Kids, I know our team would love more volunteers to just jump in once or twice a month and help us get that going. So if that's you stop by the resource center and, and, and mention that to them and we'll get you plugged in and help us get back going and get as many families back in church as we possibly can. Uh, and then the other thing I want to mention is this. I know some of you have been worried about this, but after last week, um, yesterday, i just share this. Yesterday I came home and there was a box on my front porch and uh, I, I came inside and I opened it up and there was an angle grinder inside this box. And for those of you that were here last week, you know why this matters. And there was a note from my friend who said, are we good, bro? And I had to call him and say, we're good, we're good. So apparently my friend watched the sermon last week and uh, he made restitution for his wrongs. And so I was excited about that yesterday. But if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Leviticus chapter 8. We are in our fifth week in a series in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. And uh, I can't believe it's already five weeks. Time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> and whoever thought a study in Leviticus could be this much fun, right? Uh, but when we take something that's this obscure and something as strange and as misread as Leviticus uh, and we make sense of it, it does something to our faith. It really does. Uh, and it goes beyond just you and I making sense of a historical text so that it makes sense to us. I know I've mentioned that. That's a very important thing for us, that we understand that cognitively it makes sense to us. That's an important thing. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just you and I going, okay, now I understand the book. There are life-transforming realities that are being laid before us in the pages of Leviticus. Uh, in the pages of Leviticus, it is confirmed for us that this God of the Bible is not hiding in the shadows, waiting for us to find him, and then sort of secretly, you know, trying to, to avoid us. But instead, we see a God who is not just present with us, but we see a God who is pursuing us, who is active. He's pursuing humanity, and he's showing us who he is, and he's revealing how we live in this world that he created, how we live with others in this world that he created. And, and, and so on some level, Leviticus is showing us, it's like God is saying, listen, this is who I am. This is what I'm all about. This is what really matters. This is my heart for you and, and for our relationship and for the way you live with other people. So God kind of pulls the curtain back in Leviticus and he's showing us, hey, this is the, the nuts and bolts. This is what really matters. This is how things really are which then brings us to, to chapter 8. Um, Leviticus chapter 8 actually builds on some of the principles that we talked about last week, but I need you to understand that the first five chapters, the first five um, sacrifices are presented to us as sort of like, here's what you're going to be doing for your future, people of Israel. Like, this is what you're going to do. When we get to chapter 8, now there's something that's actually going to happen. It's sort of an inauguration of now this new way of living for the people of Israel. And there are some amazing dynamics in this that I want you to see today. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open to verse 1, and it says this beginning in Leviticus 8, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent 
of meeting. I'm going to pause here for a second and just have you just notice a couple of things. First of all, the Lord says to Moses, I want you to get Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother, but Aaron is also the priest. He's the one, along with his sons, who are going to do all of the stuff that they've been reading about in these first seven chapters, these first five sacrifices. They're the ones that execute on all of those details. So, he's, so God says, I want you to go get Aaron, and I want you to get his sons. I want you to do this. But then the next part is sort of disturbing. I don't know if you picked up on this, but it says, bring his garments. That means that Aaron isn't wearing his garments in this moment. We're not actually sure what he's wearing, but it can't be much. In fact, my guess is that it's probably as little as possible without being X-rated. That Aaron is standing in this moment. It's probably a PG-13 version of Aaron standing here. I don't know if he's wearing a Speedo or what it is, but it can't be much more. God says, I want you to bring Aaron's garments, and I want you to bring Aaron, and then I want you to get a bull and a couple of rams and some oil and some unleavened bread, and I want you to stand before the tent of meeting. Next verse, verse 4. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord commanded to be done. In other words, he's doing what he was supposed to do. But you have to picture this scene. You have to picture that, that Moses calls all of the congregation of Israel and says, everybody gather at the tent of meeting. Everybody get here. And then here comes Aaron and his sons, and they're not dressed. And Moses comes out with Aaron's clothes and a couple of animals and goes, all right, this is the thing God told me to do. Does God ever ask us to do things that don't make sense? Right? Are there times for you, like, there, there's times when God says, I want you to do this thing, and it doesn't make sense in your culture. It might not make sense in your family. It might not make sense to you, but I'm just asking you to do this. There's a path that you haven't taken before. Moses did as the Lord commanded to do. He brought him out. God said to do this. Here's what we're going to do. And, and, and they're walking towards the tent of meeting, and everybody is watching this scene. He brings all of the people out. He assembled the whole congregation. And this brings up a question. Now, obviously, you have to be thinking, what is God showing us? What's he teaching us in this moment? What's the picture that he's painting? But why in the world would he bring out the whole congregation? Why would this take place this way? There has to be a reason, right? So next verse, verse 6, it says, Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. So now... Aaron is standing here with his sons, and they're in very little clothing, and Moses starts washing them in front of the congregation. This is a little awkward, is it not? I mean, if we did this on a Sunday morning, you probably wouldn't come back to church, right? He washed them with water, head to toe, in front of the people. Now, this is interesting, because if you remember, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is in a desert, right? Which means that water is what? Water's scarce, right? Water is precious. Water is something you drink. Maybe you wash your hands. Maybe because of the way they would recline at a table, they would wash their feet. But you didn't wash the way that they're being washed here. Quick question, and I don't want to know, although um, some, I do know for some people this morning, um, don't raise your hand because I don't really want to know and no one around you does. But if you took a shower today, you can acknowledge this. You took a shower, right? Some of you took a shower before you came in today. When you did that, why did you do it? Not a trick question. 
to be clean, right? It's like the oldest illustration in the book. You wash with water to be clean. So I just want you to grab the picture here. We have the priest, and what is the priest going to be doing? Well, the priest is going to be interceding on behalf of the people to God, right? He's going to be the go-between between the people and God, and so you want the priest to be clean. So Moses washes Aaron and his sons in front of the people, and the people are watching this. And I just have to wonder, do you think the people are paying attention Probably, right? Like, they're going, what in the world is going on? Moses is washing Aaron. Why are we, what are, what are we doing here, right? Now, check this out. He finishes washing, and it says, he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he placed or put the urim and thummim. Talk about a tongue twister. Then verse 9, it says, And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. So Moses, get the scene here, Moses dresses Aaron. So he washes him, and now he puts on his priestly garments. He puts this elaborate robe and these details, all of it, in front of the people. He's dressing Aaron in front of the whole people of Israel. And then it continues in verse 10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and, the anoint, and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now, oil we learned in week number two of this series with the, with the grain offering. Oil is representative of what? The Spirit of God, right? So the Spirit of God. This is a statement. He's saying this guy is covered in God's Spirit. And remember, everybody's watching this. Then we get to verse 13. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering in front of the people. So if you remember this, when they lay their hands on the head of the offering, remember this, they lean on the offering. When they lay their hands on the offering, this is when they begin to confess their sins. So do you get this, that they've been dressed by Moses in front of the people, and now you have the priest, Aaron and his sons, now you have them standing there, and they're confessing their sins in front of everybody. They're making their sins known. I love this. They are confessing their sins just like everybody's going to confess their sins to them. They're doing it in front of all the people. So the people are watching the priest do in front of them what they are going to do in front of the priest for the years to come. And this would send a message to the people, the, the, the priest, other than this clothing, other than this garment that he just put on, they would be getting this message that this priest is just like us, right? That's the picture. The priest is standing in front of all these people, and he would, have this, he would have this message being sent to him as well. You can't help people until you've done this for yourself. 
You can take people only as far as you've been taken, right? That's what he's understanding. This is beautiful. You can't help other people deal with their brokenness unless you've come to grips with your own brokenness. That's what he's saying. You can't help others until you've been helped yourself. So in front of all the people, as you continue reading this, they participate in the sacrifice, and the message is clear. Yes, you're a priest, but you are just like us when it comes to being broken. If you go down to verse 23, it says that after the sacrifices happened, this takes place. It says, And Moses took some of its blood, and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. So, so Aaron, he's cleaned, he's, he's anointed, the sacrifices have been made, and then Moses dips his finger in the blood, and he touches his earlobe, he touches his thumb, and he touches his big toe, right? Which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That's what you do every day, right? Start your day with a little blood on the ear and blood on the ear. No, we don't do this, right? So what's going on? Why do this? Well, remember, what does the blood do? Well, the blood covers, right? The blood covers. It purifies. So why blood on the lobe of his ear? Well, if you think about the priest, first of all, the priest is going to be hearing from God, Right? And so he's covering his ears. Not only that, the priest is going to be hearing the sins of the people. And so he's covering all of those things that the priest would be hearing. There's this moment of sort of acknowledging what you hear is a little distinct. What you hear is going to be different. And then you ask the question, well, what about the thumb? Well, in this culture, the symbol for, for work, the symbol for what you did uh, as, in terms of service was your hands. Your hands represented what was really happening in your heart. The things you worked with, the things you did, were a reflection of what was going on in your heart. It was an outward sign. Um, this is why uh, in church there are times we raise our hands because when we lift our hands, it's representing something that's taking place in our heart. And so it represents our work, right? The hands represent work. And so when he anoints the thumb, he's saying this individual works for God. He works for the kingdom of God. Uh, and then we have the toe. But you go, well, what's that all about? Well, throughout the Bible, the word walk is associated with more than just a means of transportation, more than just you and I getting from one place to another. Walking has to do with the way that you live. Uh, it's how you're living your life. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that we are to walk worthy of the manner to which we have been called in Christ Jesus. It's this idea of living a life out. So th this blood on the toe is an outward symbol that your life is being lived in a particular way. So this guy hears God. This guy serves God. This, this guy lives for God. That's what's being said about Aaron. Now skip down to verse 30. It's a summary statement of everything that's going on here. Verse 30 says, Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron with his garments and his son's garments with him. So, so do you get this? He washes him. And he dresses him, and then they do the sacrifices, and then at the end of all this, imagine he's in this priestly garb, he's in this beautiful white robe, and Moses takes oil and blood, and he splatters it on their clothing. He splatters them. This white, pure garment is splattered with blood and oil in front of the people. And it says that they have been consecrated. The idea of consecrate is, is to be clean, to be set apart, to be set aside, this will be used for the service of God. That's the idea of this. Now, why did God 
have Moses consecrate Aaron in front of the people. What is this all about? What's, what's happening with all of these directions and why the splattering and why the dressing and why the washing? Why is this happening? Well, you have to know something about where they came from to fully understand the significance of this. See, in the cultures of that day, and particularly the culture of Egypt that they had come out of, but other cultures of that day, there were religious systems that had priests. This was a normal thing for there to be priests in these systems. The difference was that in all of these other religious systems, the priests were viewed as other. They were, they were sequestered. They lived in another place. They were, they were pure. They were holy. They heard God in a way that people couldn't hear God. They didn't do things that other people did. And they would only come out and be presented to the people in these particular particular moments and there was this mystery and intrigue and then they would retreat back to their sequestered place and so there was this reverence for the priest because they were different than everybody else. That's what they've been used to. The priest is different than us. The priest hears God in a way that we can't hear God. But now the people of Israel, they see this and this is radically different. What we've just read is a complete contrast to everything they had ever seen as it had related to priests up to this point. God makes a point to say, the priest is just like you. Look at him. Look at him getting washed. See him confessing his sins. Those garments splattered with blood and oil. He's just like you. So, so let me pause and just say something right here at this moment. Last week, if you were here, um, we talked about this idea of walking the goat, and we talked about vulnerability and transparency, and, uh, and, I, and just from what I've heard this week, I think a lot of us needed that word. I think a lot of us needed to be encouraged to be at a place of vulnerability and transparency, especially around our brokenness. Um, but somebody caught me as I was leaving. I was out in the parking lot, and I was in my truck, and somebody stopped by my window, and, um, and he said, hey, I, man, I, I needed this today. I needed this. And I had seen him in a conversation with some other folks after the 11 o'clock service, and and he said, but man, I, I just got a question. And he was just so sincere. And he just said, we get it. We get that we're supposed to be vulnerable with our brokenness. We get that we're all broken. But he looked at me and, and, and he just said, but who goes first? And it sort of haunted me. I mean, I drove out of the parking lot and I was sort of haunted by that because he's right, right? We talk about being vulnerable with our brokenness and being transparent. And then there's this sense of, but who goes first, right? Who, go, uh, who wants to volunteer to get their goat first, <laughs> And so I was thinking about that, and then I get to chapter 8, and I start reading what we've just read here, and you know what I realized this week? I go first. I go first. That's on me. So before we go any further in chapter 8, I just want to share something with you. I am a broken mess of a man who makes mistakes just like everybody else. Um, my story, my life is riddled with moments and decisions that truly they require a touch of God's grace in order for me to get through today. There are moments I look back on, I just, God, thank you for your grace to cover that. And, and, and I, I say things and I do things and I think things every day that I regret. Things that I know are a reflection of my brokenness. A lot of times, relationally, I feel like a bull in a china shop most of the time. That's, that's kind of how I live my life. And, and I'm not talking about a decade or two ago. I'm not saying, well, there was this time back then. I'm talking about like a week ago, right? Uh, I, I'm saying that, like last week, I said something to my wife that was really dumb and hurt her and caused us to have one of those conversations, you know what I'm talking about? Some people call it arguing, I just call it a conversation, right? 
man, this year I've lost my temper at some really insignificant things this last year. I've gotten, I've gotten, I've taken things that people have said or just little things that shouldn't derail me, but they've derailed my heart and I've allowed stuff to get to me that should never get to me. It should never really bother me. I, I, I've, I've, I've made my priorities. I've had them drift and get manipulated by other things or misplaced. That's me. You get the point, right? Or do you guys need, do you guys need more detail than this? <laughs> I make mistakes. Like if, if, if I was a goat keeper, my job would be really easy because at this point in my life, I'm down to like two, maybe one goats left. Are you, are you with me on this? Like that's where I live my life, right? I go first. I'm just telling you I'm broken and I'm just going to say that so that we can all be vulnerable in this. Aaron went first. I'm going to go first and say that's me too. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 by the way, throughout this series, I reference the book of Hebrews, I have already and I will in the future. And you say, well, why do we keep going to Hebrews, which is in the New Testament? Um, let me just explain that the book of Hebrews, a lot of the letters that you read in the New Testament were written to different churches in different cities during the time of the first century when the church was expanding. The book of Hebrews was actually written to Jews in all kinds of different cities who were, had become Jesus followers and now they were navigating, trying to figure out how do we transition from this sacrificial system and these priests to now following Jesus. And so Hebrews is a book that's explaining to Jews how to make sense of Leviticus and all the things that we read there. How does this connect? What do we do? And so it, it's enlightening and shows us something about even what we're reading here. So Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 says this. It says, For every high priest... Chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, so the idea is, I just want you to hold on to this, that a priest is there to assist people, to help people. He's pointing people to the sacrifice. This is why we're doing this. This is what the sacrifice is. Keep your attention here. That's what the priest does, right? Why does the priest do this? Well, he does it because people lose focus. People have short attention spans. And so the priest is there to keep people on track. So now verse 2 of Hebrews 5. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. In other words, he himself is ignorant and wayward, right? In fact, the word strength or weakness is actually in the Greek language. It is two words rammed together. It is no and it is strength because he has no strength. The priest has no strength. Anybody else ever feel like in the middle of life you've kind of run out of strength? Right? You ever feel this way? You ever feel like in your, in your journey with Jesus, it's taking a little longer to get towards wholeness than you thought? Do you ever have moments when you go, man, I thought I'd be more mature by now. I thought I'd, thought I'd know these things. I thought I'd be different. I thought this stuff would be dealt with in my life. Anybody else ever feel this way? Do we have days when we just sort of ignore God and we do our own thing? Do we have moments when we act immaturely? Yes, we do, right? This is why we read this in verse 3. It says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. He has to do this for himself because the priest is just like us. Now, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 28, it says, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. And so we discover just from reading the book of Hebrews that the whole point of dressing Aaron up is so that the whole assembly would be reminded that he is just as messed up as they are. 
He just wears a different hat to work every day, right? That's all. You put this other hat on and you look a little different. You got a little different uniform. But other than that, you are just like us. Isn't this interesting? This is interesting. And not only is it interesting, I also love this because I think it confronts something that's both prevalent in our thinking today and it's also paralyzing for those of us that are followers of Jesus. I think people tend to believe that Jesus uses perfect people, or we're smart enough to say, well, you don't have to be perfect, but near perfect, right? That, that God uses people who, who never lose their patience. God uses people who never skip church. God uses people who know the Bible really well. God uses people who have all the answers, right? God uses people who, who, who just, they do all, they check all the boxes and they, they dot all the I's. They do all of those things, right? Like the more religious hoops you jump through, the more likely you are to be used by God. That's the way we typically think. God says, gather the whole assembly. And when he does that, he is teaching everybody a lesson about who he uses. We're going to dress him up, and you're going to see. And that brings up a good question. Who does God use? Who does God use? If you take a step back, even from Leviticus or the book of Hebrews, take a step back and think about it for a moment. Look at a guy like Moses. He's in the, in the middle of this story, but think about Moses. His story begins that when God shows up to this so-called hero, he goes, who am I, God? Don't, you have no business talking to me. Like, I, I can't do this. I don't, I don't have the capacity to do what you're asking me to do. In Exodus chapter 4, there's this moment where, again, God says, I'm calling you. And he says to God, listen, I, I'm not good at speaking in front of people. I've never been eloquent. I stutter. I have an impediment. I can't do this. Like, you can't have me lead with the way that I actually talk. Well, what is Moses doing? He's making excuses. He's saying, no, I'm so ordinary. You, 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 you go pick somebody who's spectacular. Book of Judges. There's a guy named Gideon. Um, Gideon, uh, during this time, Israel is conquered by their neighbors. And, uh, and we, we discover Gideon. He's hiding while doing his chores. And God comes to him and he says, I want to use you. He sends a messenger to him. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, it says um, that God calls him a mighty warrior. And the messenger says, God is with you. And Gideon says, listen, if God is with us, then why in the world are we living this way? Why in the world am I having to hide to do my chores? If God is with me, we shouldn't be living like this. He argues. And then a little further on, in, in verse 15, it says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least of them. In other words, he says, I was born into the runt litter of, of Israel, and I am the runt of that litter. I am the runt of runts. Who am I, God? Why would you use me? Think about David. When David was to be anointed by Samuel, everybody in his community overlooked him as one of Jesse's sons. He was the least expected to be the new king. Uh, Jeremiah, God shows up to a guy named Jeremiah during the exile of Israel. And in Jeremiah chapter one, verse four, he says, before you were formed, I knew you and I set you apart. And then when God comes to Jeremiah and says, says listen, you are my person, Jeremiah says, I don't know how to speak, I'm just a child. Did you know that when God speaks to Jeremiah, he's, he's a child? He says, I don't have the experience. I don't have the wisdom to be in this. Fast forward to the New Testament. Just take like one minute and think about who Jesus surrounded himself with. A bunch of knuckleheads for the most part, right? Really ordinary knuckleheads, right? 
That's kind of who Jesus selects as his dream team. Isn't it interesting that when you survey the men and women that God used throughout history, they've not just been regular, but they've been admittedly weak people. Actually say, who am I? I don't have this in me to do this. What is God trying to show us? Hebrews says that God appoints weak men. And generally speaking, when you read the scriptures and you see that somebody was tall and handsome and strong, God didn't use them. Instead, what we see is this. If you're taking notes, I want you to lock this thing down. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. That's it. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's using ordinary people. Aaron is just an ordinary person. So let's go back to Aaron for a moment. Let's think about what the priest does. The priest, his job was to come to God on behalf of the people in the form of this sacrificial system. But there's a problem, right? The problem is this, that when Jesus comes along, Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice and he's the fulfillment of the system. And so the system is done. So basically after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, you have, a, you have an unemployment issue, right? What's an unemployed priest supposed to do? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. This, the implications of this are huge for us, especially now after what we're talking about today. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Peter says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Guess who the priests are now? If the if the priest's job was to point people to the sacrifice and the ultimate sacrifice is Jesus, what does that mean for us now? It means this. It means that anybody who follows Jesus today is a priest. And if you're a priest, your job is to point people to the sacrifice, and that's Jesus. So let me just remind you, when Peter wrote this in 1 Peter, he wasn't speaking at a pastor's conference. He was talking to the church. He was talking to all of us. He's writing to everyday, ordinary people who find themselves feeling too weak to be used. That's what he's doing. There is no distinction between a few elite spiritual superstars and the rest of us. In fact, the last, this last week, um, I ran into my friend Bill, and he said, hey, um, when, the, you know, when the weather gets a little better, you want to join me for golf. Do you play golf? And I said, yeah, I, I do. Uh, I don't know how often I enjoy golf, but I do play golf. It's a whole little tension there. And, you know, anytime someone asks me about golf, they usually will say, um, well, how, you know, what kind of player are you? How do you shoot? And I, I, and I usually tell people I usually shoot in the 80s. Sometimes I shoot in the 70s. But if the temperature gets anywhere below 60, I'm not playing golf at all, right? Like, there's, that's just not going to happen. So, yeah. But seriously, if I'm out golfing, this is what happens. If I'm out golfing, especially in the Northwest, and there's a storm, um, in, and I'm teamed up, and oftentimes this will happen where there'll be somebody in the foursome who isn't a church person, and they get really nervous. Like, pastors make non-church people really nervous for some reason. I don't know why. But there's always that, that guy who just, like, keeps cracking pastor jokes the whole time. And if the weather turns... They'll always say something. They'll look at me and say, hey, man, don't you have connections? Can't you do something about this weather? And that's usually when I have to remind them I'm in sales, not management, right? 
But that's the truth. I have no special connections. We are all significantly, supernaturally empowered people. All of us are. We are all teammates with our own God-given uniqueness and giftedness. All of us who claim Jesus as our forgiver and our leader, all of us are chosen. We're all called. We're all redeemed. And we are all equipped and gifted to make the wonderful light of God known in this dark world. That's what we do. God has called every single one of us to be a priest. If you know Jesus, you're a priest, which means your job is to point people to the sacrifice, right? Sometimes with your words, sometimes with your love, sometimes with the way you live your life before them, the idea is that you are pointing people to the person of Jesus. You know, ironically, we've been duped into believing that in order to do the work of Jesus, we have to be perfect, when it turns out that this whole thing starts with us being vulnerable, standing in front of the people and letting them see you, letting them see that you're no different than they are. That's where this begins. Do you know what authenticates us? What authenticates our story, what authenticates our message, what authenticates the gospel of Jesus is not our perfection. It isn't our goodness and how, how we've cleaned ourselves up. What authenticates the message of Jesus is our vulnerability. It's our transparency. It's when we say, hey, here's my story, and here's where the grace of Jesus has touched down on my story and helped me be who I am today. You are chosen. You are consecrated. You are set apart. You are pointing people toward God's truth. You, all of you, are a royal priesthood, which means your ears hear God, and your hands, they work for God, and your life is lived for God. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to offer the benediction this morning, and if you're comfortable just maybe holding your hands out, you know the significance of this. And I'm going to offer this to you. May your ears be opened to hear the voice of God. May your hands be used to do the work of God. And may your life be lived in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have in Christ Jesus, in his name, amen, amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for hanging with us through Leviticus. It's been so much fun. Feel free to stop by the Resource Center out in the commons if you have any questions. Feel free to talk to friends this morning. Linger, say hi to somebody. Let's live a normal life. How's that sound for just a little bit? We love you guys. We'll see you later.